Hello and welcome to Nightlight. I've mentioned this before and I hope I don't bore any of you who've heard me say it before, but several years ago, some of you remember that we called a solemn assembly. We felt directed by the Lord to do it. Many people gathered here from different parts of the United States and uh, it was, in, in so many words, a disastrous failure in my opinion. Uh, I, I blame no one but myself for that because I did not uh, have a full understanding of what it was the Holy Spirit wanted me to do. And though some good may have come from it, I have uh, often, probably too often, apologized for uh, those who came, to those who came, for the lack of preparation and lack of clear leadership that was required for such a gathering. What the Holy Spirit was calling us to was a solemn assembly of prayer. And uh, I've mentioned this before, and so I don't want to go into it in too much detail. But we didn't know how to pray. And uh, I did not properly lead the gathering into the level of prayer that the Holy Spirit was desiring. Now, the reason for that lack of preparation is partly because of a lack of understanding that I believe we are beginning to gain with reference to how to intercede for the United States and for the, the Western world. In May of 2009, I sent out a message called Read the Signs. The purpose of that message was to awaken us to pay attention to the events taking place in our nation and in the world that the eyes of true believers should be discerning. These signs are to help us be aware of where we are on God's time clock so that we will then be able to, like the tribe of Issachar in First Chronicles 12.32, understand the times we live in so that we will know what we must do. Understanding is useless unless we act on that understanding. In different editions of Nightlight, we've examined several of these signs, but I've always been concerned that we were missing some vitally important aspects of this subject, clear pieces of the puzzle which we need in order to be fully aware and therefore fully equipped. It seemed to me that the spiritual connection that exists between Israel as God's chosen people and the United States as a, quote, city set on a hill would mean that a full understanding of current events would not come just from the American Christian point of view, even among those Gentile believers with a prophetic anointing that have, uh, there, there's still been a, a, a sense of something important missing, gaps in our understanding and direction. I believe it would take a Jewish perspective in union with Christian revelation to open the door of understanding fully. Paul refers in Ephesians to the coming together of what he calls one new man, the Jewish-Gentile union in Messiah that would foreshadow the end of this present age. And Paul speaks of it in Romans when the, the, the church and Israel spiritually come into proper relationship under the Lord Jesus, that this would be a rebirth of the world. So I believe it would take the union of Jewish understanding and Christian discernment to give us the full picture of where we are and what we must do. As the days immediately following 9-11 passed, I was increasingly grieved 
at the vapid, shallow, and truly hypocritical display of our government theatrics. The same senators who were legislating God out of our national life and who were protecting the things God abhors took advantage of a photo op and sang God Bless America standing on the Capitol steps. I spoke then from pulpits and anywhere I was given a hearing that this was like Isaiah chapter 66 verses 3 and 4 where it says that in God's opinion when he saw their hypocritical worship, he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is as if he breaks a dog's neck, and he who offers a grain offering is as if he offers hog's blood. He who burns incense is as if he worshipped an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. We all waited and watched as the country for at least a few weeks showed some signs of change toward good. If not full repentance, there was at least a sober, soul-searching atmosphere and many churches began to be filled for the first time in decades. But it didn't last. And like is always true, where there is warning with no real repentance, the return to rebellion and sin is much worse after the warning than it was before. I don't think anybody at all could be in doubt that America as a nation is in far worse spiritual condition now than it was before. We have sunk more deeply into a level of rebellion and crassness and perversion and celebration of wickedness and blasphemy than we were before. So I've been waiting for a clear revelation of what all this means, knowing that uh, the more we tend to reject Jewish revelation and have a lack of scriptural understanding, uh, the, the more we're going to be missing important items of information that can come from a, a Jewish watcher on the walls. Well, not long ago, a Messianic rabbi from New Jersey, Jonathan Kahn, began to teach a message to his area which went across the nation, which he called the Harbinger. The word harbinger means an event that portends or signifies a much greater coming event. For instance, you could say that the awakening of German national racism was a harbinger of the Holocaust. Or the Star of Bethlehem was a harbinger of the birth of the Messiah. Rabbi Khan laid out nine harbingers which are hidden to natural eyes, but which when understood become so clear, so incontrovertible, and so compelling that we would be fools to not take them to heart and share them with whoever will listen. Though some might resist the idea of a need for a Jewish-Christian union of thought as being necessary for full understanding of the signs, the enemies of God don't deny that spiritual kinship of the United States and Israel at all. Those who rail against Israel as the supernaturally restored land of the Jews only rail against both scripture and history and those who reject the fact that America has a special destiny and place in God's economy 
have to reject the manifest evidence of history and the fruit of 300 years of unparalleled freedom, creativity, and prosperity that has helped send the gospel to the world in spite of the obvious misuses of that prosperity also by our country. Name any other nation on earth which attracts refugees from all over the world. Why do they long to come here? It's not just for big screen TVs and McDonald's. It's the God-ordained nature of freedom itself that is crying in every human soul that causes so many from around the world to risk everything to gain access to these borders. This freedom was only alive because of America's foundation in God. Israel and America were both established in covenant relationships with the living God. This does not mean that every person directly involved in the formation of young America was a committed disciple of Jesus, obviously. But it does mean that wherever in the process of its birth, a nation has in its leadership those who honor the covenant blessing and bow their knees to the living God and ask for his guidance and help, that blessing and guidance and help will come. But where there is a willful rejection of that covenant, just as surely as the blessing, so the curse will come. The special covenant relationship makes for a special degree of covenant blessing, but it also means denying the covenant relationship brings a special covenant curse. Both nations, Israel and the United States, are signs to the rest of the earth. God is speaking to the nations through the events related to these two nations. This does not diminish the special heritage of other nations which have honored God in their history, but few can point to events so clearly and unabashedly God-centered as the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in establishing Israel or the pilgrimage of believers in the founding of America. This does not mean that Israel and America are always right in all they do or that they will not be judged by a holy God for evils they have committed. And though this is too large a subject to include here, I am not in any way affirming the, quote, civil religion idea of God and country, which commits the sin of idolatry every time it equates the flag with the cross, or military service with sacrifice of Christ, or the cause of American interests with the kingdom of God. That would be an entire study in itself. But what I want to underscore here is that though we reject American civil religion, which simply tips its hat in some undefined false national religious way toward uh, an imaginary God, the part of the country that does honor the true and the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the specifically identified Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Creator God, who is truly present to the world and will judge all nations, Him, when a nation or even a portion of a nation invokes and obeys Him, they obtain the blessing of that relationship. When the unbelievers in that nation choose rebellion, they who have been recipients of the blessing will also come under the curse. If that nation begins to turn with the unbelievers in the direction of the unbelievers. Yet God is so merciful and patient, he will refrain from destroying the lot if he can find ten righteous, so to speak. Referring there, of course, to Genesis 15. So let's be clear. 
civil religion that seeks to celebrate all of America as Christian? No. There is much in American history that is lacking, to say the least. Just one historic example from the 1800s written by former slave Frederick Douglass. He says, quote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of America Christianity. I could not agree with Douglas more in what he wrote. Abraham Lincoln saw the war between the states as God's judgment on the nation for slavery. The passing of time did little to correct the situation. When Germany began the open persecution of the Jewish people in the early 1930s, pressures were brought on Congress to make an open statement of rebuke against Germany. The formal declaration came before the Congress, but was voted down. Why? Because so many senators were from states in which black people were still being tortured and abused and lynched by good white church-going folks that they knew they would be exposed if they tried to stand against Hitler for racism. So to that degree, America was responsible before Almighty God, not only for the cruel mistreatment of black people, but for failing to stand by the Jews because of the hypocrisy that would demonstrate in the way they treated black people. To speak of the good old days, quote, when America was more Christian, is to speak of an idolatrous national fantasy. There has never been a completely pure national Christian identity, but the fact still does not negate the unique identity of the United States as a vanguard for truth and freedom and the spread of the gospel. It is as wrong to say America is a secular nation as it is to claim that it's a totally Christian nation. The facts of history and of the present reveal that there were two separate trees planted in the early American soil, one rooted in faith and divine providence, destiny, and purpose, the other rooted in humanistic atheism, one rooted in British understanding, the other rooted in French revolution, revolution understanding. Both trees have been growing, and neither tree is fully pure, but one is certainly more conducive to the purposes of God than the other, and one is certainly more conducive to the purposes of evil than the other, both trees are now coming into their full maturity. Everything reveals its true nature at the time of the harvest. Everything is becoming its true self. Now, in Matthew 25, it tells of Jesus judging the nations. And all nations have to give account to God. He alone is their judge. So if there's strong contingency of believers in a nation who honor God as God, and if the rest of the citizens of that nation give some basic obedience to the truth of his word, 
He blesses that nation. It will rain on the just and the unjust. But on the other hand, when the nation begins to move away from him and his basic laws for life and justice, then the entire nation becomes subject to the curse of covenant breaking. Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 18. Uh, These are not mere localized statutes by a tribal God addressing only Israel. This is the description of reality from the eternal king of the universe and the judge of all the earth. Do we really think that Almighty God is going to bow out when the nation says, we're not subject to your laws and therefore we do not need to fear your judgments? God, we are immune from your uh, judgments. Separation of church and state, remember. As I mentioned earlier, even some believers have taken up this very notion that we must be careful not to insult non-believers. Well, of course, we're not to willfully insult anybody, believer or not. But when it comes to the question of insulting God, that's a whole other subject. Judgment is coming on all nations to every man, woman, boy and girl who ever lived and is living now. What fools we are to think anything less. One of the first curses to come on a nation that willfully turns from God is found in Leviticus 25, verses 15 and 16. Quote, If you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but you willfully break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will set over you terror. It goes on to describe other terrible things, but think of where we are now in the West in light of that warning. I will set over you terror. Please take the time to read the entire chapters that I mentioned to see the full picture of what it means when a nation willfully and then even by government edict sets up laws in opposition to God's revealed laws. God seems to be extremely patient with the nation's personal, private struggles and stumbles and misunderstandings. It's when a nation begins to organize and proclaim from its government attitudes that are in total opposition to God, willful rebellion against His revealed will, that wrath and judgment begins to be unleashed. And in Isaiah 24, verse 5 and 6, quote, "...the earth also is defiled under its inhabitants." Because they have transgressed the laws, they have changed the ordinances and broken the everlasting covenant. This is not referring to just some change in statutes. The phrase change the ordinance has to do with a willful, in God's face, fist raised to declare, we will decide what is true and what's false. We will decide whether marriage is between a man and a woman or between two men and two women. We will decide whatever we want to decide. That's what it's referring to. Listen to God's words concerning the judgment of both individuals and nations. Jeremiah 18, verses 8 through 10 says, If the nation against whom I pronounce judgment turns from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do to them. That's a very comforting statement. But concerning a nation I intend to build and plant, if it turns toward evil in my sight and refuses to obey me, I will repent of the good I said I would benefit them. 
Ezekiel 18, verses 21 through 24, and then verse 27 says, If the wicked turn from their sins, he shall live, and all his transgressions that he has committed shall not be mentioned to him. But when the righteous turn away from righteousness and commit iniquity, and do according to all the abominations that the wicked do, shall they live? All his former righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. In his sin he shall die. But again, verse 27, he says, again, if he repents, he shall live. You see the heart of God, the attitude of God, the long-suffering of God, and the goal of God is life and repentance. Now, it is always worse for a people who knew and forgot than for a people who never knew. We are not in the dark. We've had 300 years of Christian revelation available to us. Yes, to some degree limited and to some degree uh, much less than what the Scripture intends. But you could hardly say that we've been in the dark in the most basic fundamental issues. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Of the times and seasons you have no need that I write you. You are not of the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Daniel 12.10 says, None of the wicked in the end of the age shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Now, what is American exceptionalism? There are several different interpretations of the term American exceptionalism, most most of which stir frustration and even disgust in the minds of non-Americans. Now, that's understandable if they think by American exceptionalism, we mean American superiority based on our own inherent greatness. Now, though sadly, that is what some do mean. That is not the true meaning of the term as it was originally intended. American exceptionalism is referring to a philosophy of life given by divine revelation, which produces a set of laws to govern life that makes possible a productivity and a creativity and a freedom of life that produces life. It takes all three, the philosophy, the law, and the life. When any one of these falters, the other two lose power. If the lifestyle disintegrates, it doesn't matter what the philosophy claims to have. If the laws are changed in opposition to the philosophy, then tyranny results and the means of life are hindered. If the philosophy itself is altered, the law and the life become deformed. When the philosophy, which is, of course, transcendent reality, which is, of course, belief in the God, not a God, not nature's God, but the very specific God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that philosophy produces the laws of the land, then the people subject to that philosophy and its laws become fruitful in freedom because the law of God is the law of liberty, resulting in creativity that then produces unlimited potential. 
The judgments of God on a disobedient nation are not so much lightning bolts from the sky as they are the natural disintegration that sets up a domino effect. For instance, a godly people know that they are responsible for the stewardship of the earth and care for it wisely. But a decadent false religious people who give lip service to the the philosophy but don't truly live it uh, end up raping the environment out of sheer greed. The result will be what we now have. Foolish, irrational pseudoscience in the name of green technologies that are neither green nor technological but are junk science motivated by leftist ideology. Stupidity is a natural form of divine judgment on a backslidden people. So in North Dakota, the United States government is seeking to throw uh, the book at uh, oil companies because they claim that they are responsible for the death of 28 birds. But a few miles south, wind turbines are killing approximately 400,000 birds a year. So much so that it is shown uh, that the food chain is being disrupted and insects are causing all kinds of problems now endangering food production. But you see, wind turbines fit the politically correct motif of green power, even though it's killing uh, 400,000 birds. But the oil companies, of course, which are wicked and evil and uh, uh, devilish, according to uh, the Green Peace Group, Uh, can kill 28 birds, and they're going to throw them in prison. Just one tiny example of how stupidity is a divine judgment on those who worship Mother Earth instead of Father God. This is a picture of corporate divine chastisement on a natural scale. Remember that it's, it's always worse for a people who forget than for a people who never knew. The loss of foundational philosophy of belief in the true and the living God results in a self-centered individualistic population that is lacking in self-control that would would come from the foundational fear of the Lord. And this lack of self-control also increases a lack of motivation and enterprise and godly creativity and that that freedom would engender. The result is then seen in every aspect of life loss of motivation to work, but not to complain and demand things be given to them. There's plenty of motivation for that. Crime increases, services decrease, the court system becomes arbitrary and or easily bought and sold by the highest bidder. Infrastructure rots because crooked politicians elected by self-serving immature populations uh, who want the dole to be secure, mismanage funds to please their constituents or steal the funds. New Orleans is a perfect example. Was Hurricane Katrina a judgment from God? People ask that. Yes and no. Yes, if we understand that God ordains the natural order to operate under certain unalterable laws, and when those laws are ignored, there will be terrible consequences, then yes, It was the judgment of God. But no, God did not cause the local democratically controlled political machine to misspend its funding and fail to use the money for the purpose it was appropriated, namely the strengthening of the levies. So when the levies failed, naturally there was a disaster. 
We've been living with these increased natural results of human arrogant ignorance for several decades now as a nation. So just as there is what is called in theology common grace, which provides for rain on both the just and the unjust, and notice, by the way, agricultural notions dependent on rain do not read that statement as a bad thing. Sometimes people quote, it rains on the just and the unjust, as if rain is some kind of symbol of something bad. Now, rain is life-giving, for heaven's sakes, unless all you care about is your golf game or uh, whether you're going to have a picnic that gets wet. Rain's a good thing, and God sees to it that it rains on both the good and the evil, because God is good and wants good to be given. This is grace, but at the same time, it also is true in reverse. A disintegrating influence sets loose in a culture and will continue to follow a general path of destruction across the board. A common evil can be just as prolific and impartial in its victims as the common grace is toward its objects of love. But what happens when the so-called good people begin to affirm the evil views of the common evil people? America is not contrary to recent pop culture terminology. A democracy. We were established as a republic. A republic is a nation of laws that the population adheres to by common consent. The democratic process within the republic makes it possible for unjust laws or bad laws or dysfunctional laws to be challenged and replaced by better laws, but all under the guidance of an overarching transcendent authority, which is not adjustable. Our overarching transcendent authority, regardless of the squawking naysayers who bend over backwards in howling at the moon denial of the facts, has always been the Jewish scriptures. Yet it has become increasingly common, even among believers, to think of government as some sort of independent entity, which even God himself must be careful not to disrespect. The exaltation of the concept of the separation of church and state, which has been given a place of authority it neither deserves nor was ever empowered to wield constitutionally, has come to now mean not the separation of church and state, but the separation of God and state. The original intention of Thomas Jefferson in his letter concerning a Baptist congregation uh, was for protecting unbelievers from undue coercion by sectarian interests, but primarily was for protecting religion from government interference, and rightly so on both counts. But no one involved in that communication in Jefferson's day, even those who were self-proclaimed non-religious, ever assumed that their human agreements in government and their interactions together carried any weight at all in terms of uh, how to decide whether God himself could be acknowledged or exert his authority in the lives of the people of the nation. For the most part, they never would have dreamed anyone would try to use such tawdry, earthly, comparatively puny points of view is having the sort of authority it now tries to exert. God himself, the real God, the living God, the true God who exists and to whom we must all give account, has now been told to his face repeatedly where he can and cannot sit.
He is now rejected from all schools, public forums, national celebrations, including his own Gentile birthday celebration. These new little wormy potentates are even expunging his presence from our history. His presence is only involved in a moment of personal danger, and his absence is only a matter of consideration in a disaster. Go away, God. And then, when something bad happens, where was God? How did this happen? His name may be blasphemed, mocked, and used as a curse word, all in the name of freedom of speech and expression. His son's cross may be displayed in art museums covered in urine or even made a sexual fetish, and the national oohs and ahs at the great freedom of a liberal culture can be heard across the board. Even opponents of the left have taken to defending any and every blasphemy as being, quote, their right to express themselves. We have made American freedom of speech more the measure of right and wrong than the scriptures. All the while, everyone ignores one inescapable fact that that is, there is the real God to whom we must give account. Now, I too affirm the right to believe or not believe or even to blaspheme. I certainly do not want a resurrected inquisition of any flavor. But what we have now is not a godly protection of atheist views, but an atheist oppression of godly views. And with few exceptions, the godly seem to want to bow to this arrangement as if demands, uh, the demands not to offend the ungodly mean we are free to offend God by disobeying him. We would rather be free uh, to offend God than to have to deal with the political fallout of speaking the truth where we've been commanded to uh, keep our mouths shut. For years and years, the natural judgments upon this nation have been increasing. But they've reached the place where mere disintegration was no longer a viable warning because we had become a people so steeped in debauchery that we've lost the moral sight and hearing to discern the warnings that come via natural disintegration of things. We evidently reached this low point of national deafness and dumbness and spiritual stupidity somewhere around the late summer of 2001. It would then take something much louder and much stronger and much more shocking to awaken our national soul. Did God cause 9-11? question much like the one about Katrina. The answer again is yes and no. Did he actively set in motion the demonic cruelty that produced the horror of that event? Well, as Paul would say in Romans, God forbid. God is not the author of any evil under any circumstances. To believe otherwise is to, is to commit outright blasphemy. Yet the same Bible that reveals God is perfectly holy and good and incapable of evil also states in Isaiah 45 verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Since James and many other scriptures too numerous to cite here tell us that there is no darkness in God at all, and John tells us that God is love, then we can rightly assume that Isaiah does not mean God is the author of moral evil. 
The word used here in Hebrew means much more fittingly calamity. Light is referred to, then its opposite, darkness. Not moral darkness, but physical darkness in opposition to physical light. Then in the same contrast, shalom is spoken of, then its opposite, the absence of peace and the presence of calamity. So when we read in other scriptures like Amos chapter 3 verse 6 or Lamentations chapter 3, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be alarmed? Shall there be calamity in the city and the Lord has not caused it? God is certainly not the source or creator or affirmer of moral evil, but he most certainly is the moral judge who assures us beyond any shadow of doubt that he is the one who will always see to it that evil will not go undealt with. Exodus chapter 34 verse 7, right after he promises to be the God of mercy who extends grace to a thousand generations, he underscores, but I also am he who will not allow the evil to go unpunished. Did God set in motion circumstances and arrange them in the cosmic scheme of unfolding events in such a way that in the execution of those evil plans, their unfolding would be a potential wake-up call for a self-satisfied materialist apostate people who have been officially commanding God to stay out of our national affairs while we not only create new and more perverse forms of evil, but export them to the whole world? Oh, yes. There can be no doubt of it. The sovereign, almighty, holy ruler of the universe is not the author of evil, but he certainly sits over all events as a refiner sits over the purifying cauldron in order to separate the silver from the dross. He is the insurer and assurer that calamity will certainly come where evil has been run rampant and his word has been ignored. The very same aspect of God's character that assures us he's not the author of evil equally assures us he is the author of the punishment of evil. For he loves all the nations, loves them enough to use the rod to save them. Thou shalt break them, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But also Genesis twenty-two eighteen says, to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. In the outcome, Revelation 7, 9, behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation stood before the Lamb. But we must remember that though he loves the nations, He's not impressed by our silly and stupid and arrogant displays of power and blasphemy against him. Isaiah 40, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust in the balance. He counts them as very small and insignificant. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing. He brings their rulers to nothing and makes the kings of the earth to be nothing. Psalm 2. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? 
And why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Revelation 15.4 Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Whom shall not fear you and glorify your name? Nations shall come and worship you. Your justice shall be made manifest over all the earth. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 through 35 Nebuchadnezzar says, As my understanding returned to me, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? I'm taking more than the usual time laboring this subject with many scriptures because it is vital that we maintain a properly reverential posture about this subject. Make no mistake, the God who loves the nations enough to die to save them equally hates evil enough to destroy every vestige of it out of the universe. And those who have been objects of his love who then willfully deny his grace and unite themselves with evil, then uh, the evil that he came to salvage them from will become the recipients of that wrath that is poured out without mixture. Revelation 14.10. That means without being diluted. Now, for more on this subject, for studies on the wrath of God, the long-suffering of God, the holiness of God, the character of God, contact us if you're interested in more on those subjects. It would take an entire separate study to begin to offer a picture of the mercy God is offering by allowing incremental chastisements to come to those who are heading for ultimate wrathful judgment against evil at the end of this age. It's mercy when God awakens and shakes a nation or a planet. That study is available in other titles, but it is of the utmost urgency that we understand that America now has entered a new stage of chastisement and judgment. And I could say this for Great Britain also, but I'm, I'm not prepared to go into the details of, of both nations. I think to some degree we are still in the spirit, so tied together in our spiritual heritage uh, that whatever I say for America could certainly apply uh, to, to Great Britain. There is hope for repentance or we would be destroyed already. But let us take some comfort at the thought, but hopefully not so much comfort that we mistake God's long-suffering as indifference. For he is not at all indifferent to the unbelievable filth and arrogance that rises before him every day. 
His mercy is extended, but there will come a time when the cup of our iniquity will be full. Uh, that's a whole study also in itself, what the cup of iniquity's fullness means. But when it reaches that point, then there will be nothing left but wrath. The events of September 11, 2001 were the signal that America and all of the West had finally reached the point where the call to repentance would have to be taken to a more drastic level. Up until then, the signs were relatively isolated and regional. Now, on this seemingly routine morning, it would become clear that the grace of national protection from God had been lifted. The strike would be decisive in its results, and the shock waves would sound far into the coming decade right up to this present moment and beyond. It would take time, objectivity, observation, and education, and the wisdom of Jewish prophetic eyes to be able to read the signs that were left on that morning. But now we have the eyes to see from a far distance what we were too close to observe on the morning and in the months directly after 9-11. The evidence that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is also the God of George Washington, John Adams, and James Madison, is revealing himself as the God Isaiah described, the one who, quote, makes known the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, reveals the things that are yet to come. Chapter 46, verse 10. We crossed a line in September 11, 2001. We are now experiencing the outworking of that beginning judgment. Now, in the, the little time that we have left, I want to describe to you from Jonathan Kahn's teaching, what he saw as the harbingers. I won't be able to go into detail about them here. Hopefully we'll be able to do that in future times together. But for now, let me have you turn to Isaiah chapter 9 as the foundational verse for this teaching. At the end of our time together, I will give you an address. So if you're interested in contacting Rabbi Khan and getting his full seven or eight hours on this subject, uh, you'll be able to do that. And I would really recommend that you do it. I'll give you enough in the time that we have together to, uh, to make you aware and uh, educated enough in these issues to be able to communicate them to other people simply. But for a more in-depth study, I'll point you to Jonathan Kahn's address. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Now, just take that one verse and sit on it. Don't read it in context. 
quite yet. Just let that verse soak in. The bricks are fallen down. We will rebuild with hewn stone, the Hebrew says. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with strong cedars. On its own, that verse sounds like a positive statement of hope in the face of disaster, of resilience in the face of uh, attack, and of hope in the face of disaster. What it actually is, in the context, if you read it in its proper context, what has happened is the Assyrian army has been allowed to breach the, the protective circle of Israel's territory because they have not listened to the prophets. They have not repented. They've carried on with an attitude of indifference toward the Lord while still maintaining a mock religious facade of hypocritical uh, church activity, so to speak, while the nation practices the evil of the pagans and dishonors God more in their worship of him than in their open rebellion toward him because it's more dishonorable to worship him and, and disobey him than to just be outright resistant to him. And so God lifts the protection over Israel just enough for the enemies to come in and strike. Not destroy, not maintain control, but did a lot of damage and then withdrew. And so the attitude of the people in the face of this judgment is eerily parallel to the attitude of America on 9-11, 9-12, and the days following. In fact, it is remarkable and the first harbinger that on the day after 9-12-2001, the then uh, leader of the United States Senate, Tom Daschle, stood up in the House or in the, uh, the Senate uh, chamber. And of all the verses, of all the hundreds of verses he could have quoted, he didn't quote any verses about repentance, of course. He didn't quote any verses about national humility or humiliation or soul-searching or searching to see what, what have we done that has put us in a, such a vulnerable position that God would lift his protective grace from us. No. What verse did he stand and read? The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. Bricks are crumbly and weak. We will rebuild with great stones carved out by our own hands. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Unknowing, he was prophesying to the nation. Now, do you remember in the book of John when the high priest made the statement concerning the Lord Jesus, quote, it's better that one man die for the nation than that the whole nation be destroyed. And John tells us that at that moment he did not, the, the high priest did not realize it, but because he was high priest, the, the power of his office gave him the position by which the Holy Spirit spoke prophetically through his mouth 
a word that had far, far more powerfully reaching uh, import than what the high priest thought he was saying. He didn't know what he was saying. He, he was saying from a political point of view, it's better that we get this Jewish troublemaker, uh, put him in the hands of the Romans and, and let them kill him. Better that he should die than the whole nation suffer. But because he was high priest, there was an anointing on his words that actually should be understood that this is the Messiah who has come to die in the place of the whole world. It's better for us that he die for us than that we die in our sins. The same principle is applied here to Tom Daschle. Tom Daschle didn't bother to read the context, or if he did bother to read it, he didn't understand it. But I don't think it would matter. I think God sovereignly overrode whatever Tom Daschle's mindset may have been and caused him to speak as the representative of the whole nation, the Senate being the, the senior uh, authority of, of Congress, the Senate being uh, the representative of the people, and Tom Daschle being the chief representative of the Senate. It's appropriate that this would come not from a judge or from the president, though it will come through their mouth later, but it's appropriate that it comes through this particular uh, office, the representative of the whole of the whole nation. God is saying, I know the heart of America. I know what the American people as a whole are going to say. They're going to say, we have been hit by evil people who have uh, knocked down our stones, knocked down our bricks, but we will rise and we will build with hewn stone. They've cut down our sycamores. We will rise and we will replant with cedars of Lebanon. And every commentator that you will read on verse 10, if you look up, look up Kaelin Dillich, look up Young, look up Strong, look up anybody you want to look up, they all say the same thing. Verse 10 is a statement of unrepentant defiance against the natural enemies who at this particular time were the Assyrians. The Assyrians, by the way, are the prototype and the forerunners of uh, all of our current Islamic enemies. Uh, they spoke Akkadian, which is a precursor for the emerging of Arabic. And so uh, every commentator says their, their words were words not of confidence in God's grace, but of defiance and confidence in their own power. There is the element of the, the Tower of Babel in this. We will build. We will rise. We will exalt our throne above the throne of God, and we will build bigger and better uh, in defiance. There was no humility. There was no soul-searching. Not on a national scale. Only in certain places has there been an ongoing soul-searching and repentance. Now, in future times together, I'm going to go into much more detail about this and share with you the nine harbingers that uh, Rabbi Khan was shown by the Holy Spirit. I believe he's exactly right. 
But in the time that we have together in this these closing minutes, let me say to you this, and I will I will come back to this more soon. I believe that just as we crossed the line in September 11th of 2001 that put us in a different category where God's chastising judgments had to be turned up louder, I believe that we have now stepped over another one. I believe that with the uh, former, the, the, the past election, uh, with the uh, events that have taken place since 2008, with the continued blasphemy, the continued disintegration of the culture, the continued disintegration of the economy, and the continued disintegration of our ability to properly relate to the nations of the world for all kinds of reasons, and our open, arrogant betrayal of our commitment to stand with Israel, that we've now stepped over into another realm. I'm going to say this. I'd like to be wrong. But I don't believe I'm wrong. I believe that in the coming year of 2012, there will be open, manifest, destructive events inside our territorial land uh, that will far exceed September 11th. I believe what will make the difference between life and death in these circumstances is going to be the corporate honest, humble intercession of God's people gathering together. Now, I, I, I don't know how to tell you to do this except to just do it. I tried to call a solemn assembly uh, seven years ago, and I made a big mess of it, and I'll tell you why. Because I wasn't willing for it to be messy. I wasn't willing for it to be cumbersome. I, I, I felt the need to entertain people who might be uncomfortable with lots of people being on the floor, weeping and crying out to God and humbling ourselves. And uh, uh, I, I, I'm ashamed of that. I pray God will have grace and mercy on me to repent of it and to bring about a real awakening for such solemn assemblies. But I believe God is saying, you must gather and you must seek me with all your heart. I'm not talking about some place where a rock and roll band can entertain people with nice Christian songs, and I'm not against nice Christian songs. I'm not against Christian bands. But I'm telling you, folks, we are way beyond the day of needing to be entertained. We are way beyond the day of coming to listen to a favorite speaker. You should be gathering with people, even if it's two or three. Two or three can become 20 or 30, and 20 and 30 can become 100, and 100 can become 1,000. If the word gets out right now, there's moves right here in Hickory uh, for there's several pastors uh, who are gathering, including the Roman Catholic priest, God bless him. They are gathering together to seek the face of God. They are laying aside their doctrinal differences. Uh, I want to tell you, if that bothers some of you, that they might be laying aside their doctrinal differences to seek the face of a holy God and cry out to God for mercy on the nation, then get your head out of your religious bucket and recognize that secondary doctrinal differences are not the main issue when it comes to the survival of the nation. When Israel was in trouble, 
everybody was called to the solemn assembly, even those who were from outside of the covenant of Israel, those who were uh, uh, pagan, who had not become part of Israel's covenant yet, they were called into that same solemn assembly, everybody, uh, bride and bridegroom, uh, called out of the bridal chamber into that solemn assembly you read there in Joel chapter 2 and 3. We're there, folks. I would like to be wrong. I would love to get to 2013 and have to look back and say, well, either we prayed and God stopped the impending danger or I was just dead wrong and overreactionary. But I tell you in the name of the Lord Jesus that the mercy of God that is manifested in long-suffering that holds back chastisement is commonly misinterpreted even by godly people as false security. And I tell you, trembling, I say this with the fear of the Lord, that we are the only thing standing between us and the destruction and annihilation of entire cities by well-placed bombs or the destruction of an entire population by uh, uh, poison. Many other things that I don't need to list. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the enemy's planning. What matters is Ezekiel uh, said, I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that I would not have to destroy the land, but I could not find one. Well, Second Chronicles 16 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a man or woman through whom he can show himself strong. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us for our lack of, of vigilance, our lack of, of being awake, and help us make ourselves available to you. Psalm 102 says, My people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day I gather my army. That day is here, folks. The email address for Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, C-O-H-N, is www.hopeoftheworld.com. Org. Hope of the World has no spaces. Hopeoftheworld.org or write P.O. Box 1111 Lodi, New Jersey 07644.